Hi, and welcome to Be the Flagship with our podcast host, Jeff Parsons. This is where we tackle the day-to-day talent management challenges you face, particularly in hospice and small healthcare organizations. And now, over to our host. Take it away, Jeff. Hey there, and welcome to this week's podcast, Be the Flagship. I'm your host, the one and only Jeff Parsons, and my wife says, thank God for that. (laughs) We have another outstanding episode for you today uh, with our guest speaker, Terry Norris. And Terry has joined us for the month of January to speak about process improvement in health care. So we're just absolutely thrilled to have Terry with us. He's a lean consultant. He's a lean health care expert. He's the author of the book, How to Make Lean Work in Your Hospital or in Your Department. And he has vast experience in developing healthcare leaders at all levels. So, Terry, welcome back. We're so glad you were able to join us again today. For sure. Thanks for the opportunity. So, today, Terry, we're going to further our discussion on value stream mapping. We're going to talk about root cause analysis and other tools we can use and other things to think about in improving our healthcare processes. Before we get into the detail and pick up from last week's discussion. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. At Flagship Talent, we work with our clients to find and place the right talent. What do we mean by the right talent? We mean we find talent who will commit to your organizational goals and align with your values and behavior expectations. Talent who will perform to your expectations. Talent who will stay and grow with your organization. How are we different from our competitors? We offer the lowest fee structure in the industry. We offer the best talent guarantee in the industry. We provide selection and interviewing support to our clients at no additional fee. We want to save you money, deliver high-quality talent, become an extension of your organization, and be your preferred provider of talent acquisition solutions. To learn more, contact Jeff Parsons by email at jeff at flagshiptalent.com or by phone at 1-800-530-4189, extension 101. Okay, we're back. So, Terry, value stream mapping and root cause analysis. So, let's let's shift just a little bit and talk about root cause analysis because, I, again, uh, I'm a novice, obviously, but going back to the value stream map, is it one of the things you want to do when you identify the barriers and all that is get to the root cause of why why you have the barrier? But just talk to us a bit about root cause analysis, Terry, and give us your thoughts on that and, and uh, how to really get to the root cause of a problem versus, you know, your your assumptions oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we'll let, if you will, allow me to go back to the current state mapping and build to that point because during that process you're getting ready for that and i'd like to throw in just one more suggestion on the current state map too is let's use an example again of the of the or let's say you want to map out the turnover how the turnover time how long does it take to change your room over it would depend, right, whether you're doing a big ortho case or whether you're doing an eye case or whether you're doing it would make a huge difference so when you pick something to map out, you want to pick something that's that's done, you know, most uh, frequently. That's done frequently, and it's sort of an average thing, something that you do all the time. 
And then you can extrapolate from that for the bigger cases, for the smaller. But you do want to pick something specific. Otherwise, when you start mapping, everybody will say, well, it depends. It depends if we're doing this or we're doing this. And that depends can just, you know, really waste a lot of time and create a lot of confusion. So be specific on what you're mapping out. Map out one thing with one patient, one person from beginning to end. And the improvements you make, you can uh, bleed over into the other in the other types of things that you do. So when you're doing your current state map, you've got your process steps up. We talked about you can add your communication flow, how the supplies get in this. You can have different data points on there. What's your manual touch time for each step? What is your flow time for each step? How long does it actually take? And then you can also, you'll have identify your barriers. You'll go through and say, well, here's a place where we spend a lot of time. Here's a place where we do a lot of rework. Here's a place where there's a lot of waiting. But you identify those all through the map. And that's really the beginning of your, your root cause analysis because you're identifying what are the issues that slows down our current process as it is now. Once you identify all those, and let's just use a scenario where we have, let's say, 85 steps in a process and we have 25 barriers. So you go through the team and you say, okay, well, let's look at those 25 barriers and let's sort of, uh, you know, basically take those off or rewrite them, which is rework, but that's the one time I say, okay, I want to be able to see my actual current state map and I want to be able to do this work over here. But you take those 25 barriers and you start working on them. You put them together if they have something to do, let's say, with training or if they have to do with personnel or whatever the case is, you sort of affinitize them and put them in groups. And then you have the team come up and vote on them. Of all these 25, and let's say we broke it into maybe seven categories now, which, which of these do you think is the absolute biggest problem? What's the number one problem that slows us down? What's the number two? What's the number three? And you may do three to five of your biggest issues. And that's important because you want to solve the big issues because generally if you solve the big issues, most of the others, sometimes every one of the other, but most of the others will be solved as well of those other issues. So let's say you have the three top issues from a process that had 25 barriers and 85 steps. You do root cause analysis on those barriers. You you do the, you know you put them all on a board one at a time and you ask the question you start you you turn the barrier into a question basically and then you ask the question well, why does this happen and that's when you get into your root cause analysis really when you start doing the five whys and the five whys which I know I'm I'm just introducing but it's a it's a technique where you ask the question ideally five times to get to the root cause and it could be three and it could be seven. And people that's actually ever done this exercise realize it almost never works like it does in textbook, where it's just, oh, perfectly, you say, well, why does this happen? And it works its way to the root cause. So how to do that literally, actually, if I was teaching it, and I have taught many folks how to do it, is to brainstorm. You know, if you have, you know, ask the question, why does this thing not work like it's supposed to? Why? And then write down, you know, brainstorm everything that you hear. And then you start putting in some sort of order that makes sense that would work your way to the actual root cause. And it works. And it's, uh, in my opinion, of all of the different tools that I use in in, in lean, root cause analysis is the most challenging. And I tell people, just get a good night's sleep, be ready to think on your feet, and uh, you know to be able to lead the group into finding what the actual root cause is. So you have your issue. You've identified what your root cause is through the five whys. And then the next step is to come up with some sort of uh, countermeasure or solution.
And if you identify the correct root cause, it's almost obvious, obvious usually what, what you need to do. So if you, if you're successful in identifying the root cause, you're getting closer to what you've called in earlier episodes, standard work. Is that right? Yes. And almost, almost always, if not always, when you're trying to improve a process, you almost always, one of your, uh, countermeasures is going to be to develop standard work. I, you know, you, there's exceptions to everything in the world. That's why I say almost always, but I'm on this one. I'm going to go ahead and say, I can't remember a time that it's ever happened that we'd made something better and we didn't develop standard work. So it's most likely most, most places, most, even if they have standard work, it's going to have to be redone. It's generally going to have to be redone. Or it's going to have to be enforced or something, but there's that component is a very, very large component to make things better. So when you identify and document standard work, then there's obviously some training that's required uh, to train the organization or to retrain the organization on, on the standard work practices. This is the way we're going to do it from this point forward. Is that right? Generally, uh, yes, it, it's generally the steps in a process along with maybe some notes about how to do that step along with how long it takes to do that step. And it can get more complicated than that with tact time and things that's very standard, I'd say manufacturing. But in healthcare, I tend to treat standard work a little bit differently. I mean, the general idea is that we all do the same job the same way every time and we continuously make it better over time. That's kind of a broad definition of standard work. Question for you, Terry. In your experience, have you witnessed people, although you had standard work, they reverted back to their old habits or their old ways? <laughs> well, not get into the improvement piece of it, but yes, you have to you have to have that in service training and even a bigger piece of that because almost everybody that I've worked with does the training, but then people don't they don't follow it, you know. <laughs> it's just uh, so if you don't have some sort of audit and accountability in that people in general i'm talking about quality people too you really you assume your best people it's just human nature just to sort of fall back into what you're doing so you do have to take time to train and you have to take time to also audit and to encourage and to lead and all that to get people to follow the standard work to get used to following that and that is a big piece in changing your culture too because we're not used to doing that what about reinforcing improvement and I will say through observations, many observations, I don't recall ever, ever in any industry seeing two people do the same job the same way without some variation in that. So you want people to do things the same way each time, no matter, you know, so if you show up for an appointment of any sort, it doesn't matter who's working, you're going to get the same level of care because people are doing things the same way. It'll be safer, higher quality. Training will be much, much easier if you have standard work. So, yes, standard work is a very, very important component. You can't really, I, in my opinion, it's hard to be consistently better and consistently improve things over time without giving attention to standard work. Yes, and that's, you know, what tends to happen, which is, you know, part of the rapid improvement of part of the training, the understanding is generally there's a dip in performance a little bit just in the beginning because people are having to, what they're used to doing intuitive, just doing it for 20 years or more, 30, and you know, everybody 
has their different time span, but they've done something a certain way for a long time. So now they have to consciously think about it and follow the steps. And the idea is not that you sit with a piece of paper every single time you do, you know, some basic functions and you have, but you do understand, you learn what's on that standard work and then you learn to follow it as it is. And you don't have to look at it every time because you memorize it after you've done it multiple times a day, day after day. Well, that's right. You know, and, and, um, it's, it's all about effectively, you know, managing the change and, and I do an exercise when I'm facilitating change management training, and it's really funny uh, as you take them through the steps. Really, you're taking them through the steps of change. They just don't know it yet. And at the very end of it, they almost always revert back to what they were doing, even if the change is better, even if the change is more comfortable for them. People just tend to revert back. They'll pull out that old form out of a locker or out of a desk drawer and you never know when I might need it again. So you're right. It takes, uh, it, it, you know, it takes leadership's commitment to holding the organization accountable. Absolutely. And, and even to add to what you just said, because it's the team, a team says, we you know, we're, they're excited about the change. Leadership comes in and says, oh my goodness, this is great. Now this will say this is a Friday. Everybody's all excited about the change. I mean, I'm proud of it, a celebration. And then they go right back, fall right back into what they were doing before. And I, I thought that was fascinating in the beginning. I'm like, you wanted to do it. It was your idea. Everybody agreed on it. Your leadership thought you were a genius, you know. And then, oh, at least we understand that. So we know on Monday we have to be ready because it's going to be a tendency for people just to go back and do what they were doing. Okay, so talk to us about future state mapping. Okay, future state mapping. So you've done your current states, you understand it, you know your barriers, you've done your root cause analysis. So we know that we're going to take our solutions that we came up with during our root cause analysis, and we're going to incorporate that into the future state. So the future state generally, as long as you didn't change your first and your last step, your scope stays the same. You put that on the board, your first step, your last step, you incorporate your ideas where you know that you've made changes. You know, we assume now our standard work is in place and we assume that we've moved this machinery around and we've organized, we've done things that's going to save a lot of time. And we build that map based on that assumption. And then we ask for everybody's ideas, you know, like what else could we do? Now, this isn't just everybody. These are the experts. These are the people who do the work day after day after day that are directly involved in that process. And generally, a lot of those people have had great ideas for years, and this is the first opportunity they really had to say anything about it. So we take our root cause analysis. We do some other training about, you know, standard work. We do training about mistake proofing, but we get people in the idea of understanding, like, some of the things that would go into a future state map. So then we, we map it out, and then we challenge it. We talk through it, and we challenge it. We're like, well, could we do this? Couldn't we do this? I mean, the way we've got this thing built, we've, you know, our goal was to reduce something, let's say 30%, but if we follow through just as it is, we're not going to meet that goal, which by the way, it's usually far exceeds whatever the goal normally, but if that happened, we would go back, we would keep working and trying to find places where we could make a real change, change that we could do, not something that's crazy or costs, you know, an exorbitant amount of money, but we keep working with a future state map until it meets our goal, until whatever 
targets we set in the beginning, we're confident if we do that, we can make it. And then we map it out. And then, of course, well, not to get ahead, but, you know, to map it out, to get it, to make it work, you got to have an action plan, right? So we build an action plan based on the things we need to do to make that future state reality. Okay. Now, earlier you mentioned future state mapping and you mentioned ideal state mapping. So what's the difference between future state and ideal state? Wouldn't your future state be the ideal? Oh, that's a great question. And it does create confusion, especially just throwing it out and talking about it like I did without it being a part of a, you know, train, even during the rapid improvement event. We do a little bit of training, then we do a little training, then we do. But an ideal state map's different. So it's, you do that before the future state. You do that between root cause analysis and the future state map. Because at that point, you said, okay, let's pretend like there's no boundaries, there's no rules, you can do whatever you want. And we want to make a future, we want to make an ideal state, something that would be perfect. So you separate people into small groups and you have them generally draw, and there's different ways of doing it, but I generally have them just draw pictures, very few words. What would it look like in the future, with an ideal state, what would it look like? And they're usually impossible, you know, they're things that are, not reasonable because you know you tell people that there are no barriers which is funny too another whole conversation but it's hard for people to imagine no barriers that's an ex that's a fun exercise itself people even for 10 minutes can't put out of their mind barriers we just it's something else anyway so people build these things and we take a look at them and, and we have them explain we put them up okay everybody does a little back brief this whole exercise if you do it right it shouldn't take that long you spend 10 minutes building it, you know, a few minutes presenting it. But as you're presenting it, as the teams are, they'll say, well, in this future state, let's say for an emergency room, for example, the patient walks in one big room. And in that room is the doctors, the lab, the cardiologist, everybody, the radiologist, everybody that you need is already there. They're just waiting on you, you know. In an ideal state, there's no waiting. You just get helped with whatever you need right then, as an example. So as a leader, a facilitator, you'd ask the question, well, what makes that better? And you'd say, oh, there's less waiting. So you write down a theme. In this ideal state, there's less waiting. What else? Well, there's standard work. There's, um, you know, the time it takes goes from four hours to 30 minutes, whatever. When you jot down all those things for each of those ideal states. And what that does, you say, okay, well, let's take these themes, you know, standard work, doing things faster, one touch. And let's help build that into the future state. So it does that, but bigger than that, it really gives you the team a mental, you know, it opens up their mind a little bit. So they're not looking at work the same way they've looked at it for the last 15, 20, 30 years. Like, okay, what could we do? What The idea is to sort of motivate people, give them that touch of creativity just before you build the future state map to open up their thinking a little bit. It's a wonderful tool. Widely underused, I've, you know, most places that I've introduced it, I'm the one that introduced it because it wasn't used before, so, but it's a great tool. Yeah, thanks for that discussion. Thanks for that explanation, Terry. Uh, I know this is not a tool, but I know you have referenced it multiple times in previous episodes, and you mentioned it earlier in this episode. But talk to us about, it's another one of those uh, Japanese words, I'm afraid, but the gimbal walk. What exactly is that? Okay, gimbal walks or gimba is a Japanese term, another Japanese term, and 
a way to describe it, I think, is it's the place where the work is being done. The gimba is where the truth is told. It's where the facts are discovered. It's just, and you think of it literally, it's where the people are out doing the work. So if you're doing work in the lab, the gimba would be where the person's in the room taking blood, you know. the per- It would be the person that's doing the work or interacting with the patient or they'd be doing the work in the lab. That's where the work is being done versus a conference room. You're actually going out to where things are happening. So that's what the gimba is. And so that happens how often? It depends. So if it happens, if you're a frontline supervisor, it happens every day. It happens multiple times throughout the day. If you're a director, it should happen every day. If you're in the C-suite, you're a, C- you're a CEO, CFO, it should happen at least weekly. You should be on the Gimba interacting. So it depends on what level you're at in the organization. Okay. And, you know, I've heard the concept before learning to see, right? And, and mm-hmm. learning to see what's really happening in your, in your process. And I'll give you an example. I had uh, a job candidate I was interviewing uh, for a VP of operations role, and she was a lean uh, champion. She was very strong and lean. It was manufacturing. And she mentioned that one an employee from a different department walked up to her one day and said, hey, I have this problem over here, and you know, I have a leak. It, you know, I have a, a water line or a hydraulic line or something like that. It was leaking, and I need to have something done about it. And and she said, well, why are you coming to me? And uh, the employee said, because I know that you get things done. And so the person walked, the, the leader walked over to the process with the employee and saw the leak. And the fascinating thing was they had, the, the organization, the company had invested tons of money in upgrading her process. I mean, they had, you know, some new uh, uh, work areas and workflows. They had invested a lot of money in that process, but they left a leak, right? And it was like, how did you invest that type, that, that sum of money, but you overlooked this one little thing that was that employee's worst nightmare. It was really a pain for her, you know, and, and, can you talk to us a little bit about how a lean? Yes, and and I'm assuming tying it into gimbal walks as well. But yes, um, so that example you gave was a wonderful example, really, because when people just generally, and this is across industries, well, I've had the opportunity to work in different types, and that helps me see that some things are very common across industry. But we we I say leadership generally tends to make decisions in the conference room, you know, in meetings and things like that. Now teams, but they're they're gathered with their folks, they ask questions, they get information, they make decisions. Well, what a difference it is when you get up from your desk and you go out to where the work is actually happening. I mean, it's, it's shockingly different. I mean, it's like your whole perspective of what you thought changes almost every time. So developing a culture where your people, leadership actually do that is, you know, it's a challenge like everything else. Um, I'll give one example, and, and if I'm not answering your question exactly, please come back to me on that. But I just worked relatively recently in a very, very large system, and they were very much on board with doing the work, having the departments do the work, value stream mapping, root cost analysis, you know, making changes that are important. But the one thing that the senior leadership was not willing to do was gimbal walks. 
they thought this whole idea of lean was fine for the people that worked for them. But they and and they had some engagement, so I don't want to make it sound so negative. But they, but the one thing they would not do is gimbal walks. They would not go out. Uh-huh. They would not commit to going out into the areas that they owned. You know that they led once a week. And you know some people believe that if you don't do the gimbal walks, nothing. You will never. I mean that's the key. That's the glue that holds everything together. Some people believe that strongly in the gimbal walks. That you know you have to go out there to where the people are. So to change a culture, to get people to do that, it takes the CEO back to the CEO from a previous conversation, you know, we had, but the CEO has to say, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to set time aside every Friday from nine to one. I want all C-suite folks doing gimbal walks in your areas. No meetings during that time. There's nothing else. Don't put anything else on your schedule from nine to one on Fridays or whatever, you know, something like that. But they're dogmatic about it they make people do it they they you know and whenever you say it that way it sounds so negative but it's mandatory you have to do it it's part of how we're going to change our culture you know and you don't necessarily present it that way but you have it has to you know people have to do it so the gimbal walk is a very big part of changing the culture and without it you're going to have you it'll be you'll be hard pressed to really make any lasting changes much less continuously make things better over time you have to go out there so Terry, when when you're putting together the rapid improvement event team, uh, how do you determine who should lead that team? You know, let's just assume that the improvement is in a department, which it almost always is in a department of some sort. I believe the department leader should be the team leader because otherwise, you know, again, it's they they're responsible for that department. So if they're not the team leader, and they delegate that or something, then they're not engaged. They're not involved. And if it's my department, I sure want to, I don't want people doing things, making, you know, making, I want input, you know. And some people, some people may say, and they, and that there is a point sometimes, like if the leader's in there, the leader will, you know, can influence everyone else's comments and decisions, especially if they're a really strong leader that has, you know, a strong opinion and, but as a facilitator, we know that. We watch for that and we try to, you know, take measures mitigate to mitigate that altogether so that doesn't happen. But to me, it's the department leader. Okay. And that's a great point about the value that a facilitator brings to the process because yeah, leaders are different and 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 the team dynamics are, are different, right? And so if you have a very strong leader uh, with very strong opinions. Uh, it could negatively impact the success of that team. And so having a facilitator who knows how to facilitate and guide the team through the process adds, brings so much value. And I just, in my experience, I know that oftentimes, you know, people are reluctant to, to bring a facilitator in, but it just adds so much value to the process and making sure that the, the deliverables are met. So, yeah. So what about the team members? Uh, the other thing that I see is that oftentimes the team leader will say, okay, I need to involve everybody because if I don't involve everybody, then someone's going to get their feelings hurt. And then you bring the team together and some of the members of the team don't know enough about the process to be able to contribute effectively. So what has been your experience and how do you determine who the right team members are? 
Well, we determine the right team members by using that side pot that I mentioned earlier. We hit all the major processes, the major steps in the process. And then we say, well, who does that? Who does that? You know, who does triage? Oh, that's triage nurse, you know. Who does the initial exam and the medical, you know, the physician? We work our way through and we okay, we need a triage nurse. We need a, you know, an emergency room tech. We need a physician, et cetera. We, we need someone from the lab, someone from radiology, because those were all steps in the process that we came up with. That's how we determine, we determine the positions. And then we ask leadership, you know, uh, pick people that you think that will more likely be engaged or pick people that are engaged that would be engaged in and influential back when they go back out on the floor and we take other steps to try and involve everyone in the entire department but not during the rapid improvement event example two weeks before rapid improvement event we'll put up a board and we'll say okay well we're trying to do this this is what we're trying to do do you have any suggestions or ideas or what do you think the major issues are and we for two weeks we ask people to add their comments that way everybody at least has a hand. They have something to say. They have some input. And we bring that with us to the rapid improvement event. And that helps involve everyone without everyone being there. And most of the time, you can't shut down operations. So if you have a department of 15, usually a couple of people will come. And everybody else has to stay and do the work. Now, if you have a small, like we're talking small healthcare sometimes, and occasionally you couldn't. If you have a small team, your whole entire, you know, department's eight people, you could do something on a weekend or you could do something like that and you could include everyone, but generally that's not how it works. Got it. That's a great approach, by the way. I mean, that's, that's, that's great. Um, so when you bring the team together and you're exposing them to these tools, the value stream mapping and the five whys and, you know, root cause analysis, all these things. Do you provide the training up front before the team gets started, before the rapid improvement event begins, or do you provide, as a facilitator yourself, or do you provide training on the go, you know, basically just-in-time training? How do you approach that and teach people how to use these tools? So I'll start with a story. So when I first got into Lean, very first, the organization that we brought in, basically we did the training in advance. We did it, and what we realized right away is that not everybody showed up. So after doing that one or two times, it was obvious. I'm like, you know, I was I was a leader. I was the director of the department. Like, we're not doing this again. We're gonna, we're not gonna do this again. So but now since that's 2006 or seven maybe. So since that time, we always do just-in-time training. You know, it's like we're getting ready to do a current state map. We do a little bit of training. We do a current state map. We do root cause analysis. We do a little bit of training. We do root cause analysis. And most of the tools lend themselves to just that. You can do a little just-in-time training and people can uh, successfully maneuver through them. That makes sense. So let's take a quick break. We'll come back and wrap things up. Did you know that most employees quit their boss before they quit their company? At Flagship Talent, we take your bosses and create organizational leaders. We bring over 30 years of leadership development and coaching expertise to your organization and have developed leaders in most parts of Europe, mainland China, Thailand, and the Americas. We have also developed leaders in most industries, including hospice and other small healthcare. Our approach is always customized to your specific organizational needs. We utilize a leadership coaching approach for individual managers, identifying their skills gaps and providing just-in-time training to address the gaps. 
We then coach the manager in a way that facilitates the application of new learning and skills in their unique work environment and helps them overcome their specific challenges. We also offer customized leadership training on your site to develop your entire leadership team. We are committed to meeting your scheduling challenges and within your budget. Need a virtual option? We have that too. We offer online development for your managers and make it available on their schedule. To learn more, contact Jeff Parsons by email at jeff at flagshiptalent.com or by phone at 1-800-530-4189, extension 101. Your managers have the greatest impact on employee engagement, performance, and retention. What are you waiting for? Let's take your managers and create leaders. Okay, we're back. And I'd like to wrap this episode up with a few things. First, when we talk about process improvement, and we've, over the month of January, we've emphasized lean and healthcare. But lean has other applications other than in clinical care or operations, right? Uh, we like to think that it's sort of narrowly focused on operations, but it's also very applicable uh, in administrative fun functions such as HR and finance and other administrative functions. In other words, if you have a process, you can use the same tools we've been talking about this month to improve your processes, to improve your effectiveness and your efficiency. Give you a couple of examples in finance. How many days does it take to close your books on, on your monthly books? Uh, what's the process for it? It is a process. Can you improve upon it? HR, what's your time to hire? How long does it take you from the time of a uh, an employee requisition to the time that that person starts on the job, that's a process. Can you improve upon it with the tools we've talked about this month? Yes, you can. And so think of it in the broader terms of how can I take these tools, even if I'm not in clinical care or any other type of operations support, how can I take these tools and use these tools to improve my processes and improve my performance and the performance of my team. Those are the important things to get out of this month's episodes. Uh, and also, I'd like to leave you with one more process improvement quote for the month of January where we have focused on process improvement. And although this is an improvement quote, it's not necessarily process-driven, it's people-driven. And remember, Be the Flagship is about talent, uh, and process improvement is about talent. It's about managing talent, managing change. So here's the quote. It's by a, a person uh, named Melcher Lim. And his quote is, There is no exercise better for the improvement of our world than reaching down on a daily basis to lift someone up. No truer words have been spoken. So... There is no exercise better for the improvement of our world than reaching down on a daily basis to lift someone up. With that, Terry, again, thank you so much for your contributions in the month of January on process improvement in healthcare. I truly appreciate you. Uh, for our listeners, remember, you can find his book on lean healthcare. The book is titled how to make lean work in your hospital or in your department. Doesn't matter if you're a hospice, home health, other 
small health care. Those tools apply to your organization. So it's a great book. You can find it on Amazon, again, by Terry Norris. Terry, thank you so much for your contribution. And your, you have an open invitation to join this podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Be the Flagship with Jeff Parsons. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did like it, please subscribe and share with others. Until next time, take the step to become the flagship in your marketplace.